and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. By trade, I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach where I get hired by individual clients in the corporate world and individual athletes, as well as organizations both in and outside of sport. I love what I do for a living, so I fired up this podcast to try to learn and to try to share some of the knowledge that I've picked up from my clients over the years and also learn from new people that are not necessarily clients of mine to find out how they are intentionally setting their mind. And today's guest is somebody that I got connected to from Danny Ferry, who was one of our past podcast guests. And when I chatted with Danny, he said, hey, who else are you hoping to get on the podcast? And I explained to him what we're looking for. We're looking for people that are open-minded, that are curious, that are lifelong learners, that are people that are willing to share their story and share all that they have learned along the way. And he said, I got the perfect guy for you, Gary Green. So Gary is today's podcast guest and Gary helped find Cameron Carmichael and Cameron Carmichael is an executive search firm based in Charlotte, North Carolina. They believe that a successful partnership with their clients is built on a foundation of mutual dedication, trust, and commitment to outstanding results. And in this conversation, we're going to talk about what Gary looks for when he's placing executives with companies and what makes a successful partnership or a successful marriage when he is doing that. He's also going to spend a lot of time talking about his journey. And Gary was a collegiate swimmer at Duke. He also served in the military for five and a half years with the Navy. He also went to Harvard and got his MBA. And today he's he's running a business and he is very involved in the day-to-day operations of that business and also helping to continue to develop and grow the business. So this conversation will get into mindset, we'll get into culture, we'll get into alignment and fit and what to look for in a great relationship. And Gary's going to share everything that he's learned along the way 
when it comes to leadership and mindset. Gary has also competed in triathlons and marathons, and he's still competing even though he is a grandpa. Uh, hard to believe he's only 53 years old and he's a grandpa, but he's still competing. And uh, so that will come through in this conversation, and I'll share why he is still doing that and why he still loves to swim and loves to compete. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Gary Green. Gary, excited to have you on the podcast. We got introduced by Danny Ferry and Danny said, Brian, what are you looking for? Who, who would you like to chat with? And he mentioned you and some NBA head coaches. So you're in good, <laughs> no pressure, no pressure, Gary, but you're in good company. Uh, Danny's been around a lot of the, some of the best coaches in the NBA. And, uh, and he mentioned that you are someone from a mindset standpoint that I would enjoy chatting with. And then we got on the phone and, and talked for a little bit and I agreed with him. So I'm excited to learn from you today to, to hopefully share you with my community and, and hopefully they can learn from you as well. And Danny didn't give me too much dirt as far as what you were like as a kid. Uh, and, and perhaps we'll just focus on you and not him. But, <laughs> but I know you guys. We can, we can focus on him. I have a lot of dirt on him. So. People are much more comfortable <laughs> talking about others than they are themselves. But we're going to put you on the hot seat. What was like life like for you as a kid growing up in Bowie, Maryland? Um, and just walk me through what life was like for you as a kid. You know, my upbringing was in a, a town about 20 miles from uh, Washington, D.C., 10 miles from Annapolis. It was, I'd say, half the people, families that live there, their fathers or their mothers work for the government. So it was a beltway bandit kind of, uh, my parents uh, decided to move there. I'm one of nine kids. So we lived in a community that had five different houses uh, that you could uh, live in, five styled homes. And um, my parents kept having kids and we kept uh, moving from one one size to the next size. Um, so my growing up, I was, I was number seven out of nine. My parents' first child died, but my parents had seven kids under the, the age of nine. So it was, my mom was a stay-at-home mom at first. Uh, my dad was a, worked for the government at 40 and decided he wanted to go on out on his own. My, my mom was not very happy. He was the first to go to college. My mom was from Louisiana. He was from Delaware. So growing up in Bowie, Maryland, I lived with a lot of families, large families, um, a lot of community, um, but it was hectic. I don't know how my parents, grew, I give them credit. I mean, all of us have done pretty well in our careers and they've kind of instilled you know, good values. So I learned a lot from my older brothers and sisters of what to do and what not to do. Um, and I think I was fortunate at where I was in the pecking order to, to, uh, it helped me shape where I was today and where I got to because of where I was in the family. So I knew if I did, if I got good grades, I worked hard, I stayed out of trouble, um, and please my parents, I could do anything. <laughs> Gary, so you, was, <laughs> Gary, you mentioned being seven of nine, but that the first child passed away uh what what happened there obviously it was before you were born but what what went right um my parents said they it was they were um right out of probably married a uh, two years out of a year i think they were a honeymoon baby I, I don't know in terms of it but they had their first child and she was born and she died i want to say like 24 hours after after she was born so it was very tragic uh for my parents because uh they were able to have the baby 
she was a perfectly uh, born baby, but it really had an impact. And then my parents' second child, uh, my mom, my brother, she had German measles. So they were telling her that she was going to have a blind or a deaf uh, child. So they, they're, they're up, their first couple, two, two births were really uh, impactful for them. And then they ended up having a lot more children, including into this. So uh, we never knew her, but I definitely think it had a huge impact on my parents. Um, How so? How do you think it impacted them? I think it impacted on uh, the value of life. Um, uh, just in terms of, uh, life is short. They, they talk about my, my sister quite often, uh, my dad, especially. And I think it, it valued that, you know, you could think everything's a okay. And then one second later, you're dealing with such adversity. Um, uh, so I think it, it shaped them and it actually shaped, shaped, um, us because I think we learned from them that, life is short and sometimes you got to take risks and you got to just trust your gut and your, and your belief in it. So I think it shaped them. I don't, I don't know if at the end of the day, and they've had a lot of tragedy. They had a child die and uh, a nephew die in a crib in one of their houses too, um, sleeping right next to my sister um, in another crib, a child. So they had, they, and that was, you know, after they had lost their first one. So it, it impacted, I think, on how, how you look at life and, and, and I think that instilled us in their children. Having two small kids myself, and we were talking about you've got kids and you're, grand, you're a grandfather as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm a young grandfather. You're a young, you're a young grandfather. <laughs> but I'm trying to put myself in their shoes and how I would respond to that. And I would love to just go, go a little bit deeper there as far as understanding the courage that they would have to not just have one more or two more, but to have you know, seven more kids after their first two. Um, <laughs> can you just speak a little bit more on the values? It sounds like they were comfortable taking risks. They valued life. Were there any other values that you witnessed and maybe your siblings witnessed from, from mom and dad? You know, I, I, I think my mom was a saint um, in terms of it. She, I mean, having that many kids, they wanted 12 kids. So they really wanted a lot of kids. I don't know what, where they got that from, but they instilled, you know, my, they were traditional, you know, my dad was the one who went off to work and he'd come home every night for dinner and my mom would have it cooked. Um, you know, sort of like that Partridge family Brady Bunch kind of, you know, in terms of it. Um, but the values they instilled, and I think it was a lot, you know, Danny, in terms of it, these buoy families, it was centered around, I would say several things. One, um, family, family was center. Two was uh, work ethic and just those standard values, integrity. You, you, we weren't all saints, but you didn't get away with, with murder. I mean, you, you were accountable. Um, you worked hard. I mean, my, I don't know how they did it. My dad didn't make that much money growing up, but you know, and, and never think that uh, I think there's, they never, I think they also provided the other value they provided now looking back and being a parent is they really provided us, um, I would say unconditional love. They really didn't, they judged, but they didn't judge. They never, they never, uh, they definitely were hard on us um, and they expected a lot, but we messed up a lot. I mean, uh, we definitely messed up a lot and I don't know how they, they were able to do it, but they, they tried, they did, they are very strong in their faith. I will say that, uh, that was, that was centered. 
We all went to what, parochial school. Yeah, what um, faith, Gary? We were Catholic, uh, you know, Catholic, uh, raised Catholic. Um, uh, my mom would have been a nun, I think, if she didn't meet my dad. That's how faithful they are in terms of their religion. Um, but they were, they, that was centered. We went to church. But you know what's interesting about Bowie? We were talking about religion before we went on the air is Bowie had a lot of, they had, they had a lot of Catholics. They had a lot of Jewish people. They had a lot of uh, Protestant. But it seemed like faith was all part and we were a melting pot somewhat. Like it's sort of like Brooklyn or it wasn't like people stayed within their religion or their neighborhoods. They kind of branched out within Bowie, but everybody knew Bowie. And so it wasn't, we didn't, people didn't judge you based on somewhat the religion or your, your, where you were upbringing. Uh, it was very, we we're all kind of in there. And that was that, that community. Uh, I don't know if they still exist today, but it was, a, it's, you know, people are proud of being from Bowie because um, it, it did have that, it, 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 the values there were family, work hard, go to school um, and community. My parents were very involved in the community. I mean, my dad was the mayor for, several years when I was younger. Uh, he was involved in local politics. Everybody knew him. He was always known regard. You might disagree with him, but everybody respected him um, because he, even though they disagreed with him on issues, they respected him because they, they saw someone who was not only trying to raise a good family, but also giving back. Um, so. And being the seventh of nine, did your older siblings also have a lot to do with your upbringing? I would imagine it was everybody sort of helping each other and your older siblings become older. Maybe they drive you to school and that sort of stuff. Uh, what was what was the dynamic like as far as siblings went? That is interesting. We had, I mean, we, trust me, we had a lot of, a lot of, you know, uh, rumblings in the house. I mean, there was my sister, um, my two sisters, older sisters slept together in a, a, a twin, a, a full-size bed. I still don't know how they did that. And they were opposite. One was a saint and the other was a, you know, uh, a cheerleader, class president, total different personalities. And they'd have to go to bed and they went to the same school. So there was, there was that little, all the guys slept upstairs in one bedroom with bump beds. And my parents rare, rarely went upstairs. And then my two younger sisters slept uh, in another bedroom. We had one bathroom, even though we had three bathrooms in the house, the upstairs bathroom did um, work and uh, it would leak uh, water through the chandelier, which is common in Bowie houses. So we had one bathroom. My parents had one bathroom. And, you know, so you could imagine just the chaos in the morning. But my, my older brothers and sisters, my parents, the one thing I think that uh, they did really well is because we were a large family, they kept us busy and they all wanted us to play sports. So all of us, I don't know how they afforded it, but we all played sports, all different sports. So we, we were never idle. We weren't the kid that was sitting, you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon, um, not having anything to do. So we all had sports or extracurricular activities. Um, they carpooled, uh, tons of carpools. I mean, I remember being, a, you know, you're in the DC area. I remember being, waiting for my mom an hour away and you didn't have a cell phone. And you're like, where the hell is my mother? You know, when, when am I going to be picked up? Um, so my, my kid, my, my siblings, I, being the youngest one, I watched them and I, I saw them do well in school and do well in sports. And I kind of just wanted to, I wanted to follow in their, in their footsteps in a, in a sense. I will tell you the younger ones had it easier than the older ones because, uh, they had to work. I mean, my, 
My parents said they would pay half for their college education. My older sisters and, and siblings would either get a scholarship or they would work a couple jobs to pay their half. I mean, uh, you know, I went ROTC. My, my brother went to the Naval Academy. They all got pretty good, but I just saw the value of what they did, and I kind of emulated them on what to do and what not to do. So I wouldn't talk back to my parents. My parents loved me, but my, my sibling, who was the closest to me, my brother, he caused my parents hell. I mean, hell, he would talk back. He would fight with them. I mean, there's tons of funny stories that the Greens have uh, with, with, with just our family dynamics. We were far from perfect, but it kind of molded who we were. We faced, a, you know, we, like you said, adversity in terms of just death. But, I mean, I was telling a story the other day about us. We got in a huge fight about going to New Orleans for Christmas. And my mom said, my dad, mom was upset. And my dad said, we're all going. We need to be there. So my, we put my mom on a flight. We, we took two cars down to New Orleans and nine of us were in two different cars. I was driving. I was 16 at the time. I was driving an escort and my, uh, my other sibling was driving this Toyota Tercel station wagon, small. And we were in Greenville, Alabama. And it, and it, uh, the engine starts going in my car that I'm driving. I'm like, dad, this escort's about, I don't think it's going. And it blew up and we're on Christmas Eve. And and the house, we we couldn't rent a car. We sold the car to some junkyard right there later on. And we piled in nine of us piled into one car, a you know, station wagon for six hours to go to New Orleans. So we look back at that and there's just I mean, all these funny little stories in terms of this adversity. It was kind of hell at the time, but you know, so I mean I'm I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but it was it was chaotic, but um my sibling, and we all, you look back, and I, I, my, my parents are pretty humble. They don't talk about their kids that much because um, I th- they're so proud of them. But, they, I mean, they have done so well. I mean, to raise eight kids and where they've all been and, and done, and they have 25 grandkids now. We're all married, um, all done somewhat successful in our own little ways. But they've been blessed, man. They have really been blessed, but my parents are old now. and My mom has Alzheimer's, so it's kind of hard, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, they were definitely, definitely blessed. I don't know how they did it. So I'm rambling, Brian. So <laughs> You mentioned sports and sports being a fabric of your family. Talk about what you did sports wise and where you found your footing. So it's interesting. I found we all, like I said, we all had our sports. I, we, we all went and where I met my friend Danny, who we were talking about was I met Danny up at the local pool. We didn't have country clubs, but we had these five different neighborhoods, five different neighborhood pools. And, and we grew up in the summer going to Bell Air Bath and Tennis. It was a local swim and tennis club. And we were all on the swim team. I was on the swim team. Danny wasn't on the swim team, but um, and I, I became a good swimmer at a young age and my siblings were swimmers too, but they didn't. So I became a competitive swimmer at, 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 at eight years old swimming year round. Uh, and at the time I was 11 years old, I was swimming twice a day, getting up at four or five o'clock in the morning. So all of us had sports. My one brother went and played college soccer. My other sister went on a scholarship to Alabama. She was a gymnast. Uh, my brother, who went to the Naval Academy, was tennis, rugby, and he played all sports growing up, but did pretty well. We had four, three of us that swam in college. So all of us had some sport, another one who was an ice skater, um, and so and then another one who didn't swim in college but could have. But So swimming was half of a swam, but uh, swimming was something, I call it my dot. If you, if you ever listen to Steve Jobs' um, speech um, at Stanford, 
uh, he says that you could connect the dots going backwards in your career and life, but you can't connect them going forward. And even though I wasn't an Olympic swimmer, swimming was something that really connected me and how it got to me. Uh, it connected my life and how I got to where I am. I got into Duke. I went to Duke at 11 years old to swim at a swim meet. And I said, that's where I want to go. And they didn't have swimming scholarships. And I never set back on foot on that campus until I went ROTC a week before orientation. And that's how I got in. I, I, I went ROTC and that's how I got paid. But I swam four years and it was a dot. And so that work ethic swimming, you know, five times a week, double, double practices and getting good grades. It kept me focused. It kept me disciplined. Um, I met a lot of people. Um, but then I was also able to meet, you know, other people uh, outside of just swimming. So I carpooled with three basketball players in high school at Damasa and, and I was the swimmer. So, you know, I got some ribbing there when I shaved my legs for meets or come in my hair with the hair wet, but swimming was my dot. I mean, it got, to, got me into Harvard business school. I think it got me where I went, worked in the Navy because a guy interviewed me was a swimmer. Uh, uh, so that was a dot, but it definitely, it kept you out of trouble. It made you better students. And it made you better people. I think sports did. Sports is key. I think, or we're any gonna, extra thought. We're going to talk about Duke, and we'll talk about Harvard. But before we go there, let's go to Dematha. So Dematha is best known for what you were talking about for basketball. Yet, uh, if you follow Dematha, the second pick of the NFL draft is probably going to be a guy that went to Dematha. If you follow Dematha, you'll also know that Paul Rabel, one of the best lacrosse players in the world went to DeMatha. Uh, so DeMatha is a place where there's a lot of excellence going on, uh, not just on a basketball floor, but in other areas as well. Um, you said there, there were eight of you, and mm-hmm. um, DeMatha is a private school. It's a Catholic school. Um, yeah. What was your experience like going to DeMatha? Um, walk me through what that was like and what it was like to be a swimmer at DeMatha. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned eight of us. Um, my two older brothers went to two different other Catholic high schools. Um, my parents let us choose which high school we wanted to go to. And I almost went to a public school, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, which was a science and math. But um, I picked the math. So you, you got to remember in D.C., those th- uh, my oldest brother went to Carroll and my second brother went to St. John's. Uh, they were big rivalries. St. John's and the math are rivalries right now. So you can imagine um, going to a different high school than your brother or your sibling. Um, so going to Damatha, I picked Damatha because one, uh, a lot of my my friends were going there, and it had a good reputation um, with not only sports, but I would say swimming was minor there. In, in swimming, which is different than a lot of other high school sports, it's somewhat like soccer. Somewhat, your club team is what determines you to go to college, not your high school team. But we had a pretty good swim team. Um, Damatha, that we're known for our basketball, and we're known for football, but. You know, Sports Illustrated did a, a study, uh, a, a ranking a couple of years ago where it looked at um, ranked high schools for all, all over sports. And it ranked the math as second. So not just for football and basketball, but every sport does pretty well. And it's a small school. It's only probably eight to nine hundred people, I think. So Dema- I went to the math mainly because of the school, uh, academics, the sports. It was close by. It's about 20 miles from or 12 miles from my home. Um, but it was a good environment. It was all boys. People don't know that. It's, it's one of the very few all boys uh, Catholic schools left in the, in the D.C. area. Um, and my mom was a guidance counselor at the sister school at Seton, 
where four of my sisters went. The last sister went to Eleanor Roosevelt, which was a public school. So DeMatha shaped me, I think it shaped me academically. I always say DeMatha was harder um, for me. I, I worked harder there, and you'll laugh, than at Duke for academics. Uh, my junior and senior year, I was taking a lot of AP classes and swimming, but I'd work my butt off. I mean, I'd go to get home at eight o'clock and, and, and uh, from swim practice and do my homework and then get up at four or five o'clock in the morning uh, and then get back and then carpool with the basketball players um, and drive in. So it shaped, I got to meet, and it also had a lot of diversity. It was, even though it was a Catholic school, um, I would say only probably, I mean, more than half were Catholic, but I had, I had one of our friends was Jewish, uh, a lot of African-American. It was very diverse um, in terms of the upbringing, but uh, all boys, really strong teachers, really people that were passionate. And there is, it's kind of corny, but they do talk about brotherhood. There's a brotherhood about Samantha. I mean, you're, you're in a, a fraternity. Um, it has that closeness. I mean, I'm going to my 35th reunion, I think, I think in a month. So I, I stay in touch with, you know, I'd say a handful of my high school, even though I live in Charlotte. So, and, and, and the decision to do ROTC and uh, pursue the military, what went into that? Well, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I wanted to go to um, the Naval Academy and follow my brother. I think we talked a little bit about that. That's a whole other podcast for you because he's in the news right now. I mean, he's the head of the Navy SEALs. And he's, he's getting a lot of news right now, but he wasn't even a swimmer. But I wanted to go to the Naval Academy and follow him. He went to NAPS, um, Naval Academy Prep School, and I applied there. I got a nomination, but I got on the waiting list. I was a strong swimmer, but the, the swim team didn't need my, my, my expertise, 200, 500 free. So I was kind of, I was recruited, but not really, not one of the, you know, it wasn't going to help me somewhat get in. So I got on the waiting list and I knew I wanted to go to some private schools. I did apply to, I did get some scholarships in some other division one schools, but not full rides. And I knew I had to pay half. And my dream was, if I didn't go get into the Naval Academy, my dream always was to go to Duke. You always need a, my parents always said, they always, always encourage us to stretch ourselves. So, I mean, I was a, a good student. I probably graduated in top five or six of my class, worked hard. My SATs weren't great. Um, I, they, were, they were decent, but they weren't great. But um, swimming got me into Duke. Um, it, the head coach was a former Naval Academy assistant, and I think he got me in there. I don't think I would have got in without, without, without swimming. And I went ROTC really to pay for my school. I knew I want, I mean, you know, selfishly a little bit. I know it's altruistically you're serving your country, but I knew it was a four year commitment. And, you know, I didn't think it was that hard. Um, so when I, when I went to Duke, ROTC, 10% of the school was ROTC, um, Army, Air Force, Army, uh, Navy. And, uh, you know, I had 50 people in my Navy ROTC class um, as freshmen. So, it was easy. I said school was first, swimming was second, and maybe Rossi was third. I wore my uniform maybe three hours a week. <laughs> but how did how did you balance those three things? And I think one of the things that is worth acknowledging is what you talked about to Matha. To Matha expects you to do excellent in the classroom and excellent in the pool. I would imagine there's just an idea that, hey, you're going to be excellent at whatever you're doing. Now you're going to Duke, once again, academic excellence, uh, athletic excellence, but now you're adding in this military component. How do you think you were able to manage all that? And then also college is a social experiment yeah. or a social experience or whatever you want to call college. Um, but there's a social component that is different. 
how were you able to uh, manage all those to still keep your head on straight and, and to do well there? Well, I think one, it's, it's, you did experience in your formative years, zero to 18. I did it. I mean, I, I was able to juggle a lot, uh, living in a large family, uh, driving 45 minutes early in the morning to practice, getting up, uh, making sure I got my homework. So the transition, I think from college to, I mean, from high school to college for me was not as hard. Um, I did, I did almost not swim. I lost at the math. I lost one of my friends, my senior year, and again, that life is too short. I did not swim my, my summer uh, between senior year of high school and college. But I'm a type of person, once I make a decision, I'm all in. So I waited for a couple of weeks before I swam at, at, at Duke. And the coach was like, are you coming or not? And I said, coach, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it all in. And I, I got to make sure I want to do it. And if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it for four years. So I did it. But once I did it, juggling the social aspect. I mean, hey, trust me, I partied enough in college. I had a great life in college, uh, I would say. But I was able to do it because um, time management. I learned I learned how to get in the most in a day. I needed my sleep, but I was, you know, I'd get up, go to class, take a 15-minute nap, um, go to practice. I mean, that DeMatha, having, having seen my older brothers and sisters and watched them, that again, an influence going to a DeMatha that does have that, it's still that excellence. And, you know, DeMatha also in Duke, you don't have to be, you know, people think, always think you're God given talent. Um, yes, people are, uh, are given, you know, some good innate DNA, but a lot of it's, a lot of it's that intrinsic. If you, if you don't use it, um, and that's what you use at Duke and, and DeMatha. I mean, you, you are competing against people, some that are God given talent and others that just have grit. And if you want to succeed, you got to, you got to figure it out. So, you know, I figured it out based on my upbringing, based on my school and uh, Duke was a, a great experience. I wouldn't trade Duke, you know, juggling all of them. I have really good friends from, from, uh, from the ROTC program to this day to, to swimmers that I keep in touch with and to classmates. Um, I wouldn't say I wasn't that in touch with the professors there, um, that's kind of interesting. I wasn't, um, as much as some other schools, but, um, a great experience. I mean, uh, so I was, I would say I was fortunate because a lot of, I saw a lot of other people struggle in those three areas, as you said. You mentioned senior year of high school, not swimming. Did you like swimming? Oh yeah. I love swimming. I didn't swim my senior year, summer of senior year. I took off three months. So I did swim my senior year. I'm sorry. But your so, four yeah. years, four years at Duke, you enjoyed swimming and you enjoyed, uh, you, you know, you said it's one uh, of your dots. Yes. I loved it because it, one, it, it, you're part of a community, a part of a team. Um, swimming is individualistic, but it's also part of, it is a team sport because, you know, I was on relays. Um, we competed against other teams. We weren't great. We were always the underdog. Um, and, and what, when and I recruit now, I know we'll get back into that. I recruit senior level executives. I will say I'm biased. When you, when you are part of a, a team, even it could be a band, it could be a, a, an athletic, um, you differentiate yourself. You, you, you learn how to work with people. You learn how to communicate with people. You learn how to get a, you have a, a goal and you, and you learn how to achieve that. You learn camaraderie. You learn, uh, giving yourself up for someone else. So, I mean, there's a lot to be said for, for sports and, and, and 
and matching them up with your professional career. So, but it's interesting because swimming is a monotonous sport. Uh, it's a hard sport physically. You mentioned even in high school in the morning, you're waking up early, you know, to go swim before school. Um, and I often ask swimmers, cross country runners, wrestlers, uh, even tennis is another sport. Uh, those sports require physical pain and mental focus. And um, so I'm just curious, like, what did you love about swimming other than the camaraderie, other than the part of being something bigger than yourself because you were also getting that with ROTC, which also uh, has challenges to it. But I'm just curious, like what about being in the pool? Did you love, you know, I, I, and I'm a very social person, a very gregarious person. I like me being one of nine. You're around kids. One thing that I loved about the pool was one, if you've been in a pool and you try to swim and you're not a swimmer, it is a hard sport but it's actually one of the best sports. I mean, we're, the earth is, 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 is encompassed by water. I mean, people, I mean, we have more water than land and being in the water, there's something about, um, it's, it's, it's when you're swimming in the water, even with people, but you're thinking you're, you're able to think about a lot of different things for two hours, even though you're competing. So it's a sport that you, 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 you do need attention when you're racing, but when you're training, being in the water um, is the one place that I'm actually relaxed and I'm not, um, I can think, I can think, which uh, you don't have anybody, you know, if you're swimming 2000 yards and it takes you 25 minutes, you don't have anybody yelling at you. It's only you in the water. So you're, you're thinking a lot and it's somewhat depressing in a sense for me because once I'm outside the water, even though I work my butt off in the water and I, I, I really work hard, um, I'm go, go, go outside the water. I mean, I, there are very few times where I'm not talking or, or listening to someone else. And you're talking in the present. So let's just fast forward and then we'll come back to your story. But I know you do Ironman triathlons. Uh, you also do marathons. So I'm curious if there's anything different when it comes to a marathon and you're running versus try where you're biking and you're swimming. But uh, walk me through what that's like for you to compete um, in those endurance types of competitions. You know, I always wanted to do an Ironman. I saw if, if people remember the birth of the Ironman, there was a, a woman who crawled to the finish line, uh, lost her bodily fluids. And that was on wide water sports, ABC, wild water sports. And it's the agony of defeat. And she lost the race. And I always, in my gut, there's, it's kind of, I kind of say the sixth sense. I knew one day I was going to be able to compete. I mean, I had a child right out of college. My wife and I got married very young. So uh, for a while there, I wasn't doing athletics and weren't, weren't competing. So I knew once my kids were a little bit older, I, I knew I was going to get back to competing. There's nothing like competing uh, in, a, in a marathon or a triathlon or a swim race or even a basketball game. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, there's, there's, there's an end result. Someone wins, someone loses. Uh, there's no subjectivity. That's the beauty about swimming. There's no subjectivity. Beauty about uh, um, Ironman, no subjectivity really. Uh, running, no really subjectivity. There is, you could be the best basketball player and you might not be selected. I mean, there, you know, in terms of sometimes, you know, look at the Olympic team in terms of think of the people that don't get selected sometimes. There is some subjectivity in that. Um, there's none really in swimming and none in running. So uh, I love to compete. I love to compete. I like to play. 
Um, so, you know, the endurance sports, there is nothing like um, training for an Ironman 15 hours a week to 20 hours a week and then, and then doing the race. Because if you, like anything in life, if you put the preparation in and you do the work, you're going to be successful. Regardless if you don't get to your goal, you're going to, do, you're going to experience something all the way through that journey. Um, like no other. It's no different than preparing for a test or no pre preparing for an interview or a podcast that you're doing. If you prepare for it, you get through it and you're, and, and you're really passionate about what you do and you like it. Uh, it it's joy. I mean, it's, it's enjoyment. I mean, so I don't know if I'm answering your question. But. Well, you just talked about um, success is not necessarily about the outcome or where you finish, but is the journey. How, how do you define success? How do you think about success? You know, success, that's a great question because people ask that all the time. I think the only person that can determine if you're successful is yourself. And, and you'll only know that. I, I know that. I, I, you know, I recruit a lot of CEOs that are very, very successful. But some of them might not even consider them success. I know people that I consider successful and they don't consider them successful. But then I know people that aren't even successful that you would judge that they weren't successful, but they're very successful. So I judge success as if you have a goal and at the end of that goal or end of that job or end of that family or your children, and you think you've done the best that you can and you might not have gotten to your goal, you're still successful. You've, 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 if you put, so success to me is, is defined as, as at the end of anything, you believe that you did, did, you did the best you could and, and you rarely wouldn't change anything else and, and you had success at the end. Success could be, I mean, you know, it's, it's, again, it's subjective. It's very subjective. Where are you, where are you today as you think about yourself? I'm not perfect, but I'm 53 years old, but I'm blessed. And I think I'm pretty sick. I'm one. I, I think, and God help me. I hope, I hope I continue this. I I've raised a really good family with the help of my wife and my family and my friends. You don't do it together. You know, there's no I in team. Um, so I've been six. I think I've been successful with my family. There's things. Yes. I've been successful with my career. I look at people that aren't happy with their careers. I interview a, a thousands of people over my 20 years of doing executive search. And there are a lot of people out there that aren't happy with what they do in their profession. And you spend most of your time working. Why do you and think they're not happy, Gary? Because these are people that maybe the outside world would say that person's successful, but you're having a conversation with them and, and you're seeing something else. Why do you think they're not happy? Um, I think people, as you get older, people, a lot of our society judges based on money. And, and I think uh, that when you get older, you realize that money doesn't define your success. Your job title doesn't decide your success. And what I find when I interview a lot of these senior executives, uh, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are not happy with their job because they've kind of fallen into it. They have a family, they have ends, to, you know, means, they have things that they have to pay for college, uh, private school if they're in private school, um, extracurricular country clubs, houses, 
and they kind of get in that rut where they don't have a choice and they think they don't have a choice. And so by, uh, you know, I, I think our society judges success by money too much. And that to me, that's, that's part, I mean, being successful, making a lot of money is definitely a, 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 a parameter in terms of how you might judge it. But I find a lot of executives aren't happy with really what they're doing. Yeah, golden handcuffs without any autonomy can be tough to overcome. And, um, you know, you hear, not you, I hear a lot of, well, if I do this, then I'll get there. Uh, and then it's like, now I'm 40. If I do this, then I'll get this. If now I'm 50, yes. if I do this, then I'll do this. And eventually they don't know any other way of, of living. Um, and by the way, I, when I have conversations with those types of executives, I'm completely, it's not my, to your point, it's however they want to live and however they want to define success. So it's not for me to decide if that's what they want to do or not, but I want to go back to you and, and see. So if you're interviewing someone and you can feel that for them, they feel trapped or a lack of autonomy or an inability to shift. What, what do you um, do with that information as you think about placing them um, with a company? Well, it could be something that they, uh, when I'm, when I'm interviewing them, uh, this could be an opportunity that and why they're perhaps interested is because it is a transition and they're excited about it. So just because they're not, might not be excited about it, um, uh, in their current role. Um, I, I judge that I, I, when I'm interviewing, I'm a, I am judging, I'm looking to see if that executive would be able to fit into uh, a company. Uh, they already have the tangible skills. Most people at my level where I'm interviewing the CEOs and board levels and VPs, they have something in their background that shows that they have the tangible skills. The things that I'm looking at is, are they looking at the intangible? And so if, if they're unhappy, when, when I talk about unhappy people, um, I, I recruit people, I mean, senior levels. And I would say, uh, I interview a lot of people also that are in job transitions. I call it my Judeo-Christian ministry. So I meet people for breakfast every morning if I'm not traveling that are trying to figure out, they're usually senior level people, trying to figure out what they want to do with their life or their career. And those are the people I'm mainly talking about uh, when I'm talking about these people that I'm meeting uh, that are unhappy. But some of, the, some of my candidates are. Um, I, I, I spend probably four or five hours both in the phone and on person uh, with each candidate that I present. Um, and then I write them up. So I get to know these candidates pretty well. And I probe, probe them on things that they probably are not comfortable in the past asking or answering. Um, but I want to make sure I get to know them. Um, and that, you know, when you see someone that's not energized, but what they, why they do it, you don't want to place them in a position that is very similar or, or even, I always tell someone, you don't want to wake up at 60 and wish you would have done something else. I preach that a lot. Um, and you mentioned fit, and I had on a uh, a couple episodes ago a guy named Scott O'Neill, who is the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers and also helps run the New Jersey Devils. And he said, "I said, what do you look for? Like, what do you look for? What what sort of things do you look for to see if they'll fit the culture that you have here?" And he said, "I don't really look for fit. I look for alignment." And he said, you know, because we don't want people to fit what we do. We want them to bring diversity and new ideas and we want them to do things differently. Mm -hmm. but, we, but we do look for alignment and alignment of values and alignment of 
you know, how mission minded are they and how are they thinking about their work? And so as you mentioned the intangibles, I'm curious, like, how do you try to find alignment amongst the intangibles between the person that you're trying to place and the organization that is looking to hire them? Well, you know, uh, Steve, our uh, the chief executive officer for the 76ers, I think it's the word aligned versus fit. I mean, it, it, fit is also looking at um, if there's a if there's a culture that wants diverse views and has a collaborative, um, that's when I'm looking for fit in terms of, I mean, that's alignment really with their, their values in terms of, um, I do it by, I mean, there's a lot of situational questions I ask. I ask for examples. Um, in terms of, of uh, situational awareness of how they might have uh, done something. Um, I also, references. References, people fail to uh, do a lot of references now. Um, uh, so I, I will back up what I think through references um, and probe further there to make sure that they're aligned with uh, the company. You know, there's a lot of companies I work with that have, I mean, all companies have different alignments. I mean, 76ers, uh, I'm sure is a different culture and a different fit than the Golden State Warriors. Um, you got to make sure. So I do that on the front end, meaning I sit down with the management team or the board of directors and spend uh, time getting understanding their values and their alignment. Because um, that's where that's where where you're hearing it from. And it could be, I mean, you just probe. You got to probe. You got if if it's a if it's a hierarchical environment that he's, this person's going to go into where decision making is made at the top or by an owner, you're going to have to probe that if that person's aligned or comfortable with that. Or is it an environment where they are able to, uh, to voice their opinion, which is a lot, uh, a lot of companies have now. Is that person going to be comfortable voicing their opinion? Show me examples of you doing it. Show me where you changed your CEO style or opinion. Show me where you uh, took a subordinate and change your opinion based on what they did. So there's ways of asking for that, and you'd be you'd be pretty pretty uh, quickly to discover um, when they're not able to answer certain questions and give examples. You know they're not a fit or aligned with the values. And your company is called Cameron Carmichael, and you started it almost 20 years ago. And Cameron Carmichael, for those that don't know, uh, is Cameron Indoor, which is yeah. where you went to school at Duke University. That's where the basketball teams play. And then Carmichael is the name of North Carolina's uh, you know, basketball arena. And for those that don't know, North Carolina and Duke, they don't really like each other very much. Uh, they're both located on Tobacco Road and not too far from each other. And they are it's one of the most heated rivalries in, in college sports is Duke versus North Carolina. And so tell everybody a bit how your business came to be and, and what that partnership is like. Sure. I, you know, uh, uh, just to back up a little bit. I've been in the business 20 years, but at the age of 33, after a lot of different jobs, I decided um, I wanted to be a retained executive search consultant. Um, and uh, I wanted something entrepreneurial. So I, I joined a small boutique search firm called Sockwell Partners, and I met my future uh, a partner there, my future co-founder of this business there. So we worked there for 10 years, and we were half owners. Uh, we bought out the founder, which uh, who is now deceased, but <laughs> there's a lot of Duke Carolina. He, he, he ended up being the grandfather of Luke May, who was one of the best basketball players uh, recently from Chapel Hill um, and has a, 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 a a son right now that's one of the top basketball. So there's a Carolina connection to, to my old firm. Um, 
So we worked there for 10 years and then formed, we were sitting at a bar figuring out what are we going to name our firm? And uh, we, as you said, we're, we're one of the uh, fiercest rivalries in, in college sports. And we were trying to figure out what we wanted to embody our firm and, and, and think of, of what we are both as people and our firm. And you can't find uh, success based on winning percentage and, and grit and hard work and trying to do things the right way on, on at Duke and, 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 and UNC and college basketball. So we, we kind of use that analogy and having a Duke Carolina, most people don't like each other. We decided to name it after our, our alma maters and, and, and took those winning percentage and grit and hard work and formed Cameron Carmichael 10 years ago. So, um, and it, it embodies our, 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 uh, our, um, firm. Um, there's eight of us and, uh, three of us. Now there's two Carolina grads, uh, that are partners and I'm the Dukey, but Cameron's before Carmichael and it takes one, it takes one, one Dukey to equal two Carolina partners. So I like to say that. And, and joking aside, what's allowed your partnership to work? I think we're aligned, like getting back, we are aligned on our values. Um, we have, uh, in any professional service firm, there's, there is eat what you kill somewhat, but it's not. We have a model which allows us to collaborate with each other, incentives to collaborate with each other. And um, we know each other. We're all different people. We all, we all are different personalities. Um, but we're aligned in our values of what we want for our firm and what we do for a living. I mean, we change people's lives. I mean, you might think it's corny, but we change companies and we change people's lives. And if they didn't hire Cameron Carmichael and hire another search firm, they might not be where they are today. I mean, it sounds, but we're moving someone from California to Boston and it better be the right fit. And so we treat that with, really, really carefully to make sure it's the right fit for the company and they're right aligned. Because at the end of the day, they pay us a lot of money to find good people. And they want to make sure that it's the, you know, you're changing a, a family or a person's well-being and you're changing a company. We do a lot of lower to middle market companies. So companies that are 25 million to a billion. So these are senior people that can really uh, affect the outcome of not only their family, but outcome of the company's lives. So you got to take it serious. So we're aligned. We're aligned in what we do. We don't bat a thousand, but we, 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 we have a process. It's not rocket science, but we, we do a pretty good job at what we do. When you're not successful, what typically is the reason for uh, quote unquote failure? You know, I always say the hardest, the failure is we look at, we judge our successes is are they still with the company three years later? And 81% of our people are still employed with the same company or company that was acquired. And usually the times that it hasn't worked, it's, um, it has worked because someone has moved and their family's not happy or that they're not successful. They're not doing what the board or the company thought they were going to do. But it's very rare, I mean, um, in terms of that. Uh, uh, you, you don't bat a thousand, so you'll miss number. We, we, you know, you might do eight references on a person and you're thinking they're going to fit in this company and they don't. 
and we missed the ball somewhere. They might have missed. But remember, you, we're not the hiring manager at the end of the day. There are times we're not hiring. We're just spending, you know, three to five people we think would fit in the organization. At the ultimate, the ultimate decision maker is is the, the you know CEO or the board usually. So um, it's it's misalignment. And also, I think there's sometimes where where they're taking a risk on someone that perhaps um, could do the job. Um, and then there's others, there's other misalignments where we misaligned the culture. We thought it was one thing and we sold something to someone and it wasn't correct, but it's very rare. I mean, our success rate is pretty high. So I'm not, I'm not saying they're, they're kind of either, either personal that it doesn't work out or, or success wise, they're not aligned, but it's, uh, I will tell you the hardest position to recruit is VP of sales or chief revenue officers. Why? The hardest. Why? Um, several reasons. One, to uh, if you're successful in sales, you're getting paid, and most salespeople are motivated by money. And so if they're getting paid and doing well, they're hard to recruit away. Secondly, you do not know if what they're selling is why they're successful or the people underneath them why they're successful, and that's hard to judge. And then three... Um, you could put a very successful salesperson that is selling, say, a consumer product, say food, and move it to from craft to P and G, but the culture and the and is different in each company, and that person doesn't fit into that culture, and they're not successful. That's where, out of any one position, it's because of those three reasons, um, and it's it's hard to recruit. It's harder. Uh, to judge if that person's going to be successful in that company. I've always also been interested in sales, perhaps because of the sports background. I think both of them are highly competitive uh, positions where you're trying to win and you're trying to get to a certain outcome, kind of like swimming. You knew, Hey, I'm in this lane and I'm trying to get this time, you know, sales, Hey, there's my number and I'm trying to reach that number. Yep. And what I've seen in sports is oftentimes those great players don't necessarily make great coaches or managers. And I'm also curious in sales, how you guys figure out if you've got a rock star salesperson, but they're looking for a position that's going to be more leadership management, um, how you guys figure out if they're going to be able to transition into that management role when perhaps they've been a high producer and that's where their secret sauce and that's where their genius is. Yeah, we're mostly recruiting that chief, that, that VP of sales. So uh, very rarely do we recruit someone that perhaps has not managed a sales force. So that, I mean, we're at that, that one level. So if they have not managed and have experience managing people in a sales force, we most likely would not be recruiting them for that next role. Um, that's just the, the type of searches that we do. But I will tell you, most of the salespeople, that man that move into management roles are usually the most successful individual salesperson. And I agree with you. There are a lot of sales managers out there that are better individual contributors than they are leaders. And uh, you have to decipher uh, when I'm interviewing salespeople, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta um, probe to see, are they really a sales leader, a manager, sales leader, sales manager, or are they that individual contributor? But there are a lot of times when I'm, I'm recruiting a company where they're, I call it a coach, coach mentors, but also a salesperson. A lot of companies that we recruit people do have to somewhat carry a bag. 
and be that chief salesperson. So, you know, it depends on the company and what they're looking for. But you're right, out of any one position, I think there are a lot of, I think there, are, there could be a lot of sales leaders out there that are better sales leaders than they are individual sales um, people and, and, and vice versa. And talking about leadership and being part of something bigger than yourself, uh, and you sort of said, hey, I got in the military because there's an opportunity to pay for college. Um, but you end up serving six years in the U.S. Navy and uh, as an officer. I'm curious how that has shaped how you think about leadership or you think about teamwork um, and what that experience was like for you. You know, I worked in a very unique program uh, for six, five and a half years. Um, it's called the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program. It was headed by a four-star admiral who had uh, public law that basically gave him the ultimate responsibility, not the CNO, not the Secretary of Energy. So the military, which I think is very un, uh, unusual in, in, the, in the world somewhat, our, our militaries, you know, we're forced ranked as an officer. So if, if I have four people underneath me, I have to rank all four, one to four. I have to promote people. There's only a certain number of people. In, in the military, if you don't get promoted, you're out. Um, so I learned, you know, not only team, but you're being judged on success, but you're also being judged on how well you're able to lead people. And if you're not successful leading people, you're not promoted. Um, so I learned a lot about accountability. You know, they fire people in the military. Basically, you get weeded out. In business, there's a lot of people that don't get fired. I mean, there's a large Fortune 500 companies. We got a lot of them here. People just hang on and, and, and they should be fired or they should be moved into a different job uh, that they're going to be successful with. And you're constantly rotating in the, in the military. You're not serving in the same role every two years. You're rotating. So I learned a lot about cross-functionality. I learned about accountability. I learned about teamwork. Even though you're being judged, you're also being judged on how well you are leading versus your individual contributions. So there was a lot of good, the thing that you're not, you're not paid incentivized, uh, which is, which is a little, I, I wish they could fix that. Um, but uh, I don't know how you do that. So I learned a lot in the military about leadership, teamwork, and accountability. I mean, uh, you don't see it. You don't see the accountability uh, in, in the workforce, I think, only at really at the higher levels, the CEO and the board fire, you know, you don't see it at the mid level. Um, as much. That's just my take on, on that. And you made a reference earlier that said, Hey, uh, swimming helped me get into Harvard and get your MBA from Harvard. I'm curious, what was it like to be at a school like Harvard where you've got people with resumes that are probably, uh, pretty unbelievable. Uh, what was it like for you to be part of that community and that culture? You know, I will be, I'll be straightforward. I was a little intimidated going to Harvard. Um, uh, you got to remember, I didn't have much business background. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a lawyer. Um, so I got in there and there's 810 of us starting. There's 90 in my section. Um, and I was married with two kids. My wife had gone back and got her master's. So, and, and at Harvard, which is very unlike a lot of other schools, sort of like the military. I don't know if people know this, Harvard Business School. They have forced curve. So you, they have to give 10% F's basically. It's, you're judged one, two, and three. 10 or 20% get ones, which are like A's. 
70 or 80 percent or 60 somewhere around that get twos and the rest get threes you have to give a teacher has to give out a certain number of threes and if you get a certain number of threes uh, you are asked to leave the school after your first year so I walked in there thinking I don't know anything about accounting finance I'm going against these people that work on Wall Street they know business and you had cases and you know uh, half your grade was participation and in some classes and so and you get cold called you get put on the spot okay you read we read 15 cases a, a week so my first semester I laughed um, I was married two kids I was again swimming helped me discipline I had a routine where um, I did not want to fail I did not want to get you know hit the screen as they call it so my first semester I laughed those 15 cases that I had to read every week, I did more work that first semester than I did all four years at Duke. And, um, and I was, I would say I was a little scared or intimidated because I did not know what I'd get. I mean, you only had a, a, a midterm and a final usually, and you had a class participation. So you had no idea what your grade was going to be, uh, until the end of the semester. So, uh, I, I learned quickly after that, after getting my grades, that I could handle it, and I was no different than a lot of these other people. Um, so the first semester was was somewhat intimidating. We did have, I think we did at, after our second semester, they, we had nine people hit the screen, and six of my classmates were asked to leave. Um, you know, after spending, you know, I came out of business school $140,000 in debt. I could not imagine myself being asked to leave after some uh, a two after two semesters and having to either reapply or get a job after that so that was a little intimidating but I, I realized after a semester I could handle it but Harvard was a great experience I learned so much in business school uh, it was a great transition for me and I, I, I also got to meet some incredible incredible people including today where it is no different than being on a team and no different than being a high school or where you went to college, um, I can I can talk to people that graduated from Harvard Business School, and they they will give me the you know they'll they'll respond or they'll they'll spend a couple minutes with you, um, and people reach out to me in my job. I I love to I love to mentor people somewhat and and give them sounding advice. Um, I had a quick story on a CEO right now, um, Darius Adamchek. Uh, I met twelve maybe twelve years ago. He had been 43 years old and he he went to Harvard, he went to Michigan State, and he came to, to Charlotte. He had been with a, a private equity-backed company, about $100 million that got sold to Honeywell. And he moved here and they combined his unit with another. And he reached out to me through the Harvard Connection and he knew that I was a, a, a retained executive search consultant. And he just wanted to seek my advice. Um, which, you know, I get to talk to meet people. And he was at a point in his career was, was he deciding to go to stay with a private equity middle market, middle market company, or should he, should he go uh, stay with Honeywell? And he, um, I introduced him to some private equity people. And over that year and a half, two years that he lived in Charlotte, he came to the conclusion that he was going to stay with Honeywell. Well, fast forward, he left Honeywell, or he left Charlotte to move to Texas uh, with Honeywell. He went from a $500 million business unit, uh, which he, he helped form here. And, and grow and then he went to, to Texas and then he became the CEO of Honeywell and now he's the CEO of Honeywell. I don't know him that well, but I do text him once in a while, but he has now become the CEO of Honeywell and he's actually moved the headquarters back to Charlotte. 
you know, it's a fortune 7,500. So what I said is I learned, you, know, you learn people like that, you meet people, but you know, at Harvard, everybody, everybody has that snobbish uh, attitude. Yeah. There's, there's probably 10% of the people that are, that are this typical snob Harvard type Princeton, Dartmouth, you know, all those. Um, but a lot of people I met were just everyday people. You know, every, I always like to tell people, you know, we all put our pants on the same way. we we'll all have our same insecurities. And I learned that at Harvard too. I mean, I don't care if you're, you have a degree from Harvard or you're a degree from, from PG community college. Uh, you all have your same, in, same insecurity, same wants. It doesn't determine your success. There's something called imposter syndrome, which is found that when a lot of people step foot on Harvard, they feel like they don't belong. Um, they feel insecure like you did when you first got there. Um, and so you're not alone on that. And they've studied imposter syndrome in men and women. And uh, men actually feel it the most when they're actually under pressure. Women feel it most generally. Um, but there's some interesting research about how that feeling of I don't belong here impacts us and how it can get in the way of us performing. Um, so it's what you were feeling mm. is actually pretty common. It, I think 70% of humans feel imposter syndrome uh, at some point in their, in their life. So it is a human experience to feel like, wait, maybe I don't belong here or maybe I'm not good enough or whatever that self doubt that exists inside of us. You said something earlier about breakfast meetings and that every morning that you're home uh, and you're not on the road, you get breakfast with somebody and just talk to them about where they're going in their career and talk about the possibility of them shifting. Um, what are other intentional things that you do to make sure that you're living the life that you want to live? Um, you know, it, it gets a little spiritual in terms of it. Uh, you know, I'm not a, a, there's a lot of things that I do wrong in my life. Um, uh, you know, my goals is I want, I, you know, I want to, I want to be a good family person. I want to raise a good family. Um, I want to be respected by my family. I want to know that I love them. Um, uh, I get, I get satisfaction, um, not satisfaction. I get, I get a lot out of, uh, able to help people, uh, uh, improve or figure out what they want to do with their lives. And that in itself has come my, um, I do it with breakfast meetings. I do it with my kids. I do it with my, even my siblings. Um, I want to make sure that I'm giving something to them uh, and I'm playing a little part in helping them figure it out. Um, and I do that with, I mean, I, 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 I truly get, I'm sure why you do what you do. Um, you, you, you find something that you're, you're good at and you're able to help someone else. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I, you know, I just can imagine right now, my brother who is, is, is the head of the Navy SEALs. He comes to me at times to seek my advice. It gets lonely at top as a CEO when you're running and there's not a lot of people you can talk to. Uh, subordinates you can't talk to really and so does some of the things um, the board you can't so I, I find that I get to, I get personal satisfaction if I can you know at the end of the day I want to I want to you know get to heaven and if I'm doing I'm finding a purpose in my family faith my work um, hopefully I'll get there I don't know if I, I I'm articulating it the way I uh, answering the question 
Yeah, I think it, it sounds similar to how I think about my career, which is how do I help people get from where they are to where they want to go? And I think that's really what coaching is all about. And you lit up earlier when you said, we're changing people's lives. Like this is serious stuff. Um, and we can connect people and help them figure out what they want to do with their life and make sure that they're living a fulfilling and meaningful life. And so I think that is at the core of your mission. Uh, one of the things I'm curious about is you're also Ironman, Marathon, grandpa, father, um, you know, running a business. Um, so what habits do you do? So we've got breakfast. Um, you mentioned spirituality. Is, is prayer a part of your, your routine? Yep. Mm -hmm. so, so walk me through maybe what your mornings look like or what habits or routines you do to make sure that you're sharp and, and where you need to be. Well, I always, you'll laugh at this. I, I think you need, you need to eat right. You need to sleep well. You need to have friends and community and you need to, I want, I want to live life. Um, you only live one life here on earth and you got to experience these things. So, you know, one of the best quotes I say is, uh, uh, um, I, I think it was OJ Simpson that said it, my brother gave it, the best experiences in life are when you get your feet wet. So I'm trying to get, you know, you, you got it. My day is, there is a routine. There's definitely a routine. I mean, if I'm training for an Ironman, I'm working out probably two times a day. I'm usually doing it over a lunch, uh, or I have flexibility in, in my job. So, and in the morning, but I get up, um, I, I leave when my kids leave. Uh, I go to breakfast, I come to work, I work out at lunch. Um, I'm home for dinner. Usually I coach. Um, I used to coach basketball. Um, so I, I have a routine my weekend. I do, I did take up golf, so I do like the golf. Um, but I, I need to sleep. I do need to sleep. I do need to exercise. People don't take care of themselves. Um, and I believe exercise is no different than sleep and eating. You need to do it. If you're going to live long and you're going to live healthy, you got it. And you're going to live sharp. You got to have that. I give, I give a speech to my kids. I've had two, two weddings now. And I say there's five things in life or five, five things that you must do every day. Um, and I take it from Jim Valvano. One, you got to, um, you got to laugh. Two, you got to cry. Three, you got to think. Uh, and, and cry could be, you know, tears, happiness. You got to pray. You, you don't have to pray to a God, but you got to, you got to take some time and, and you got to, uh, work out either with your spouse or your friends you'll 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 be able to be a better person um and those are those are five things that i think you got to do so i try to do a lot of those every day <laughs> but i love what i found i was lucky like you uh, that you found something you really really enjoy and you're good at um not many people are blessed with that so um that's the that's that's the hard part when you see people uh not happy with what they want to do with their lives I think that's a beautiful place for us to wrap. Uh, <laughs> if people want to learn more about Cameron Carmichael and what you're doing, uh, where can they do that? Is there also anything else that you want to promote or give a shout out to or anything that you're passionate about that you think people should learn more about? Uh, a couple of things. One, you can look at our website, CameronCarmichael.com. Uh, very simple in terms of that. You can link me in or reach out. Be happy to do that. Um, uh, the other thing, the other thing I'd leave, leave with people is um, at the end of the day, you asked about success and how you define success. Um, 
your spouse, your friends, uh, your preacher, your rabbi, they're not going to tell that out. At the end of the day, I leave with people that you got to judge yourself based on you. And no one's going to make that for you except you. So, you know, my advice when you're interviewing these or doing your podcast, people need to find out what they really want to do with their life because they only have one life to live. And uh, hopefully they'll find it. Um, either being a father or a mother or a teacher or, or anything. I find some most successful people I find are not the people that you think are the most successful. So uh, I appreciate it. I, I thank you for having me too. I enjoyed it. I don't know if I answered everything. No, you're good. And my pleasure to have you on. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. And maybe I'll get Gary on Twitter and get him to sign up so we can get him tweeting, at, <laughs> tweeting out to everybody. Um, but I appreciate you. I appreciate your laugh. And um, we didn't get you to cry. So maybe we'll get that the next time we have a conversation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but thanks. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I do that on the front end, meaning I sit down with the management team or the board of directors and spend uh, time getting understanding their values and their alignment. Because um, that's where that's where where you're hearing it from. And it could be, I mean, you just probe. You got to probe. You got if, if it's a if it's a hierarchical environment that this person's going to go into where decision-making is made at the top or by an owner, you're going to have to probe that if that person's aligned or comfortable with that. Or is it an environment where they are able to, uh, to voice their opinion, which is a lot a lot of companies have now. Is that person going to be comfortable voicing their opinion? Show me examples of you doing it. Show me where you changed your CEO's or opinion. Show me where you uh, took a subordinate and change your opinion based on what they did. 